This program was recorded live January 6th, 2010. ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. We're live, we're here, and we've got a great show for you today. Seriously. If you want to participate, you can on the phone, on the web, and on Twitter. As usual, we're covering all kinds of interesting medical topics. And today we're getting the NIH perspective on so-called non-traditional medicine. That's not my term for it. From the director of the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine. Dr. Josephine Briggs is an accomplished researcher and physician who heads the agency, which is now celebrating its 10th anniversary. Happy anniversary. She'll be joining us today, and if you've got a question for Dr. Briggs, now is your chance to call in or email. Our number is 888-MD1-REACH, that's 888-631-7322, and our email, sol at reachmd.com. And what else is on our minds today? How about a look at some of the biggest medical news of 2009? Matt and I have compiled our list, and we think many of the top stories, and 2009 will repeat themselves in 2010. Definitely. Can you guess which ones we're going to talk about? And we'll also take a look at the current ReachMD poll, trying to identify the biggest obstacle to cutting healthcare spending. And also look at a new trend, one clinic with two different entrances and two different fee schedules. How do you feel about that? <laughs> All that and a few other surprises on this week's Second Opinion Live. And our number again, 888-MD1-REACH. Give us a call. But first up today, headlines, but not our typical selection of the wild and wacky. This week, your intrepid Second Opinion Live hosts take a look back to 2009's medical headlines and present what we view as the most important and interesting to the medical community. When we say we, we probably mean everybody. So we might as well just get the top two stories out there quickly because practically no one's talking about anything else. First up, you guessed it, swine flu. We thought the next pandemic threat would come from birds, but it turns out pigs literally hogged all the attention this year. Thank you for the that pun. That was terrible. That That's, was awful. That I take full credit for. Uh, first noticed in a large population in Mexico, then quickly spreading around the world. Global health officials predicted it might cause catastrophic suffering and death not seen since 1918. But now that the um, H1N flu uh, has hit children and pregnant women the hardest, um, which has caught a lot of us by surprise. Fortunately, it has been, at least up to this point, a relatively mild disease. But, of course, the flu season isn't over yet. Right. It, it, it's, it's an underwhelming disease to me. Yes, it has, is, it's killed some people, absolutely, but flus do. But I think there's just been so much hype about it, and it hasn't really played out to what mm -hmm. it was supposed to be. We, and especially waiting for that vaccine. We were all desperate waiting for it. And yeah. Now that I have it, it's like over. Yeah, yeah. And suddenly, it's not in the news as much anymore. It's just a mild disease, which... Thank goodness for that. But say that to the people who have underlying diseases. Exactly. And you know, it's caused some tragedy. Well, there's another top news story. We all know this the one. The other top. Healthcare reform <laughs> on the horizon. Uh -huh. Now, legislation's now passed both chambers of the U.S. Leg uh, US legislature. Um, now, reconciling the bills is next on the agenda. Mm -hmm. yeah. But, Matt, I have a problem with health care reform and calling it health care reform. Well, fire away. This it's, is the platform. Board. It's not health care reform. It's about getting people on the insurance rolls. It's about money. It's about insurance companies. It's about reforming insurance companies. But there's nothing in those bills about health or care. Mm -hmm. There really isn't. It's about getting people to the doctor. If you really want to reform health care, we've got to really talk about a system of making people responsible, getting us to eat less nonsense foods or junk foods, getting us to exercise, getting us to doctors. It, that's health care reform, not the way we're doing it now. Yeah. Do you think that this might be phase one, though? 
Might be a way of starting things? Uh, I hope so. Yeah. But we, but if it is, at least getting people on the insurance rolls will help. Let's see what the bill shows, though, because, you know, we've read some of that stuff on air. It's it's unreadable. No one knows what's in those thousands of pages. And unfortunately, it's become a very partisan issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, why don't we talk about some of the more notable headlines of the year, just to fill in some of the other ones. And there are many out there, but we just selected a few. Obviously, I think the change in mammogram guidelines is a big one. Um, Conflicting information and loads of controversy there. Um, We know that the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, they said that women should get fewer mammograms starting later in life, but uh, the American Cancer Society rejected the advice. They were holding to annual tests beginning at age 40. So clearly there's been a lot of intense intense debate there, uh, crossing, I think, specialty fields, crossing national boundaries, everybody. It, it's become a turf war of people's egos and, and money. And every, people suspect that trying to cut those down was a way to save money. Yeah. I don't know. We've got more stories, though. Yeah, what other ones? Uh, I, I want to I go on to one that's really important to me, and that that is the ban on embryonic stem cell research lifted by the Obama administration. Mm. I think this is a really good thing. I think government needs to stay out of science necessarily. I mean, we can, we, it can support science, but it shouldn't be making decisions based upon religious basis or, or anything like that. How about the AIDS vaccine results, too? We can't, we can't get that one out there. The largest tra- vaccine trial to date, inconclusive results, that's kind of sucky, <laughs> Yeah, <it didn't, laughs> to put it lightly. <laughs> it didn't work. And for those of you who want to go and Google, there was a full-face transplant at Cleveland Clinic. The pictures are that fabulous. This lady has a face. It, it, it is amazing to me what these surgeons have done with the, with the face transplant. Yeah. It, it, it's awesome. It, but it, unfortunately, we're radio. We can't show the pictures. You know that she had 30 operations before that? Point? I know. And she can eat now. It's astonishing. It's amazing. All right, now on to the simple, straightforward topic of cutting healthcare spending. And that's also the subject of this week's ReachMD poll. Yeah, so a lot of us wonder why cutting healthcare costs is such a challenge. But do we really know what, or better yet, who the obstacles are? Mm. The poll question is who presents the biggest obstacle to cutting healthcare spending? Government, physicians, or patients? We'd like for you to log on to ReachMD.com slash poll later listen to us now, to go directly to the poll homepage, cast your ballot, and then see what your peers think. But in the meantime, here's some things that we're thinking about. And we are thinking about them indeed. So some interesting stats here. National health care costs amount to about $700 billion annually. That's my, um, that's my salary. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure. You're a dermatologist, aren't you? And there's a lot of trimming to do there, clearly. But how much? And some health economists estimate that up to 30% of annual health care spending is wasteful. But a lot of what we do or don't call wasteful, I think, rests on a on the point of view. So where are those sacrifices going to come from? I ask you that. Okay, well, first of all, you know, we need a tighter shift in attitude away from that's what we do here to like that's what works based on evidence. Now, having said that, I like evidence-based medicine, but you also can't be totally dependent upon it. If you do, then medicine loses the art and becomes pure science, and it's both. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you do a treatment that, well, it didn't work someplace else, but it works for this patient, and you have to be allowed to do that. So you're saying... Be a clinician. Don't be a technician. Exactly. Yeah. Be a clinician. And, you know, over-testing is rampant in our system. Mm-hmm. It really is. But that, that begs a question, like, why are we over-testing? What tests can be eliminated? Patients usually side with more testing. They think it's better testing. Look at the mammogram issue. But mm-hmm. I think we over-test a lot of it because of the fear of malpractice. And that issue is not being put on the table. You know, we don't have tort reform coming up here. I think we could probably cut. 20, 30% of the things we do if we're not scared of being sued by an attorney. Mm-hmm. So do you put it more on the doctors or put it on the patients in I terms of on, over-testing? I put it on the whole system. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all, you know, we're, we're all in this together. It's not just doctors, not just patients, not just government. We really need a sit-down of everybody involved 
and let's tell the truth. Tort reform hurts us. Not talking about the amount of money we spend on end-of-life care, about 50% of our health care dollars, from what I understand. Last that hurts. eight weeks or so. Yeah. Last, last two, it was actually a few days, I think. Last it? couple of weeks. Yeah. Th- these things need to be brought up, and we need to talk honestly about them. But what about doctors? I mean, what do we need to do more, um, and what do we need to give up to do our part? I mean, do we, do we have to divorce ourselves from, let's say, the lucrative fee-for-service payment systems, or well, more lucrative, I should say? let's say we stop paying doctors totally. They were only 2% of the health care dollars spent. Mm. So is that really going to make a big difference if we don't get paid at all? Targeting doctors is the wrong thing. And second of all, if you get rid of the fee-for-service basis, we're a capitalistic country. You know what used to happen in England when doctors were allowed to make $140,000 a year? They made that by September, and then they went, they went on vacation for the mm-hmm. rest of the year. We're not a socialist or communist country. We, we are fee-for-service in everything we do. And, mm-hmm. and, and you think that that incentive is what drives better medicine to some extent? Um, I think so. It's what, drives, it's what drives us as Americans. Well, hey, what's your reaction? Share your thoughts with us at reachmd.com slash poll, where you can vote on the ReachMD poll, and you can, you can say that Matt and Michael sent you. All right. And now we'd like to welcome our guest for this week, Dr. Josephine Briggs. She's an internist and nephrologist, as well as an accomplished researcher, and she currently directs the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine. Uh, 83 million Americans spend an estimated 33.9 billion dollars on complementary and alternative medicine. I don't like to call it that either. In managing their own health, Dr. Briggs and her agency are researching the science behind these treatments, whether they be acupuncture, dietary supplements, massage therapy, or meditation. So we've invited Dr. Briggs on her agency's 10th anniversary to look back at their accomplishments, the evidence they're building on popular CAM therapies out there, and future research directions. Josephine, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. Glad to join you. I'm, uh, I have a quick question to start off, because um, I've been looking through some of your previous positions and route to joining this agency of uh, NIH. You directed the neighboring division of kidney, urologic, and hematologic diseases for close to 10 years, then uh, seemed to join the Howard Hughes Medical Institute as senior scientific officer for a few more years. And from, then from there, you took your current position focused on CAM. So my question is, how did CAM therapy and research enter into the picture for you during those other posts? I mean, um, or, or did it? And uh, if, if not, was this like a whole new ballpark for you? Well, to a certain extent, it it is a new ballpark, but a fascinating one. The first director of the Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine was Steve Strauss. Steve Strauss was a leading vaccine investigator here at the NIH, and he and I partnered on a number of uh, projects. Uh, We put together a big workshop on placebos, and that was, uh, I was at that point overseeing a portfolio of, of research in which I was just struck with the magnitude of the placebo effect and thought it was worth getting people to talk about. Steve was also very interested in that because it is uh, certainly one component of the way a lot of alternative therapies may help people. And so Steve and I partnered on that, and and it got me very interested in in mind-body medicine and and learning more about how hope and expectancy and all these other things that go into placebo responses uh, help people. Uh, and and I, I enjoy overseeing at Hughes. I was uh, overseeing a very interesting, wonderful uh, science, but but I missed the active uh, role of overseeing human subjects uh, research, which is um, in some ways my first love. And so I I was very pleased to be selected for this complex and interesting job. 
Well, what's your personal feeling about, uh, once again, complementary therapies? I, I, you know, I hate that term. They're therapies that are non-allopathic. Let's call them that. Uh, what, what's your personal feeling about them? Well, you know, it is a big grab bag. We're talking about an incredible range of different interventions that people undertake, often as self-care, to, to improve health conditions or, or promote health and wellness. And so in some settings, I'm impressed that these modalities may help, for example, with with pain management. Obviously, the broad umbrella includes some uh, therapies that are potentially dangerous or, or very bad alternatives to, to conventional care. But uh, NCAM's mission is to make sure there's good science going into things that are important to Americans' public health. I think that's great. Let me ask you a question I've asked. I've done a number of interviews with people doing alternative therapies in standard settings, like shock trauma units. Mm -hmm. And our, our Western therapies are based on a model that the body is very mechanical. It's, 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 if you go to the chemical level or the physical level, it, it's a machine. We replace parts. We use drugs. And the, the, let's call them the Eastern therapies, are based more on the human being as a spiritual, energetic field. Right. <laughs> right? And so those therapies are based upon that. So how do you translate those therapies into the Western model? Because it, uh, if you're just going to, in my feeling, if you're just going to take acupuncture needles and stick them into somebody instead of giving them penicillin, that's really not what we're talking about here. How, how do you, how do you right. deal with that? At times, there are mismatches between uh, conventional scientific uh, methods methods and uh, studying uh, complementary and alternative medicine. But I think most of the time those problems can be solved. Uh, we are after rigorous tests of whether things work. Uh, acupuncture is an interesting uh, example of some of the problems. If you very precisely match the context and whole experience of acupuncture, but don't exactly put the needles on the meridians, you may still get benefit. Because the whole context of care that has developed through thousands of years of Chinese experimentation may be part of, of how acupuncture works. And it may not simply be the needles or the meridians. And I, I think that's what the research is, is pointing to. Nonetheless, acupuncture does seem, for at least susceptible people, to be a, uh, an intervention that, that modifies the perception of pain. And the data on that, I think, is coming together. Now, when you use the word susceptible people, there's a, a suggestion there that you, you're susceptible to something. It almost sounds like you are putting it in almost in the basis of fraud, like I'm susceptible to, to this charlatan. <laughs> Maybe or, it's a bad word. Right. Uh, there are some people for whom... and and. Acupuncturists, even in China, I, I was in a, a traditional Chinese medicine uh, facility in, in China, and the acupuncturists recognize when they try to do acupuncture anesthesia that some people get better analgesia than others. Uh, and so whether this is similar to hypnotizability and other uh, susceptibility to kind of mind-body interventions, I don't know. I think it, it works better for some people than others. Hmm. And it's really interesting in terms of you telling us how you kind of got into interested in this through monitoring uh, placebo effects and then looking at complementary alternative medicine, which I think a lot of practitioners, um, you know, more conservative, uh, traditional practitioners, if we want to call them that, uh, will say that a lot of um, CAM therapies uh, rely on placebo. Right. And, and um, I'm wondering if you had to change your views after studying or looking into and examining things such as acupuncture, which is getting a little bit more support 
um, um, from the evidence uh, that you've been kind of building. Uh, if you've had to kind of broaden your field of view a little bit, or if you still kind of maintain that, that healthy dose of skepticism with what you do here. Oh, I maintain a very healthy, I'm naturally a skeptic, uh, and I maintain a pretty healthy dose of skepticism. And, and you know, I'm used to running double-blind uh, trials of drugs. I think that's the right way to approach uh, studying drug effects. I'm not sure that it's the right approach, however, to ask some healthcare questions like, does this help you with your pain, uh, where uh, blinding may, may not really get us closer to that, to the real question. Uh, but to stay skeptical is, um, I think, part of being a rigorous scientist. Mm -hmm. So here's, here's a question for you. What's in your medicine chest today? Is there anything that, that you're having in your personal medicine chest that you wouldn't have used before because you've been exposed to it? <laughs> it's, it's an, actually, I, I'm staying pretty pretty skeptical. I was uh, just on uh, vacation with my uh, grown-up sons and their partners and my husband, and we all had colds. And, and I uh, was, you know, I tend when I have a cold to go for things like uh, honey and some tea or maybe a little rum with the tea and the kids were reaching for the NyQuil. So um, I, I, I sort of, I kind of like these natural remedies if, if possible, but, but, but I certainly, uh, I, I uh, take vitamin D and I take uh, calcium. Uh, I do a little yoga. I do a lot of exercise, but, but I'm not a regular supplement user. Well, I think what you just said brings up a really interesting question. What you're talking about are two alternatives. You like the honey and tea. I do too, by the way, and steam. They like the NyQuil. So with actually, shouldn't we say that everything is an alternative, including a surgical approach is an alternative? <laughs> like in, in gallbladder disease, you can have a medical approach, a surgical approach. They're both alternatives. I'd get that stone out of there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think we all want evidence. You yeah. know, that, that's what it comes down to. And, and in management of, of colds, at least for, for adults, uh, uh, these are all probably perfectly reasonable, perfectly safe alternatives. Uh, for for young ch babies, we've learned that some of the over-the-counter remedies may, may not be as safe remedy uh, alternatives as we thought. But, but you know, for serious and important health decisions, I, I, I'm a believer in evidence. So, so are we. But the, the public goes out and buys billions of dollars worth of these therapies, and I see them in the stores, too. Why do you think that's so? Do you think that it is the placebo effect or that doctors are just not satisfying patients, that we can't cure them? Uh, what, what's the big question? You know, push? that's an interesting question, and I don't really know the answer. I, I, one thing I do want to say is that we're pretty convinced that the NIH-sponsored research is impacting on what public is doing. Uh, we just published, our investigators just published a large study on GIGCO for the uh, treatment of uh, cognitive decline, a very negative study. Uh, the supplement industry is concerned that will impact on sales, and certainly the past history of the other large studies is uh, some, many of which have been negative, uh, is that they have impacted on sales. Right. Uh, however, we've also uh, created a fair amount of evidence that fish oil may be beneficial, and that's also impacting on sales. So the science we think is impacting on what public the public does. Okay, if you'll give me a minute here, if you're just joining us or taking your fish oil, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on Reach MDXM160. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg alongside Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Find us on Twitter at ReachMD or find us by phone, 888-MD1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. We're talking with the director of the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine at the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Josephine Briggs, and she is charming.
Now, Dr. Briggs, uh, here's a question since we've kind of moved a little bit into supplements. We don't want to cover it too long. But, I mean, what is your take on current supplement supplement uh, regulation um, in this country? I mean, it is a massive industry, um, and that creates a lot of what we would call snake oil out there that's just not regulated. Um, but I'm wondering what, you know, in your, in your kind of interesting position, uh, your take is on that. Well, I think something that uh, concerns me greatly uh, and has is clearly receiving congressional attention is the fact that that the supplements uh, for uh, weight loss, for sexual function, uh, for athletic performance are uh, sometimes adulterated with uh, active agents. And I think that's a substantial concern. I think the FDA is worried about it, Congress is worried about it, and it seems to me the biggest safety concern in, in supplements right now. Well, how about the other side of that issue? I mean, my patients come in with things that they claim are supposed to work for things. And if you read the package insert, it says not intended to treat any disease or cure any disease or do anything after all, except have you pay for it. And people are buying this stuff and, and people are allowed to, we're allowed to sell it legally. Right. No, I think that, that there are some important concerns here. I, I think one of the things that, that worries me is the tendency of people to take lots of pills, and that includes supplements and, and in fact, uh, overuse of, of prescription medications as well. I, I read there's some recent data from the CDC that people in nursing homes are taking on average 10 pills per 10 different active medications, and we all know how horrified we are when we see somebody walk into our offices with a bag of, of 12 or 15 supplements and five prescription meds. The chance of interactions are huge. So the, these are our are big concerns, not just supplement overuse, but generally too much pill popping. Right, and I'm horrified because I don't know what half of them are. Right. And then they, they show me these names or mm -hmm. what they're doing. Yeah. yeah. Well, why don't we move into uh, some talk about the center itself? I mean, this is something that's obviously top of mind for you. I want to find out a little bit about, um, it's been around for 10 years now, this agency, and I want to hear about uh, some of the accomplishments and some of the biggest setbacks and challenges that you think have, have uh, come through the doors in the last 10 years. Right. So one real achievement of, of NCAMS has been the, the large, uh, very carefully performed randomized clinical trials of a number of dietary supplements. And we, I just mentioned the ginkgo study. There's studies on St. John's Word, on echinacea, on fish oils. And, and these have been very well performed, very carefully uh, developed studies. There were a lot of challenges in developing well-characterized products and, and, in general, in approaching this whole area. But I think the studies are, are, have been, by and large, very well implemented and uh, have had substantial public impact. I think that the other area that we are seeing impact has to do with pain management. Um, there are guidelines from the American Pain Society and the American College of Physicians on, on the value of uh, massage, uh, manipulative therapies, and uh, acupuncture as part of the management of low back pain. Every doc who manages people with low back pain knows what a tough problem this is. But we're beginning to see a body of data that suggests that in some settings these approaches can be effectively integrated into care and help. Uh, so I see those as, as two bi big achievements. We're also learning lots of interesting uh, fundamental science on, on how um, co compounds in green tea uh, affect our biology, on how f co the cocoa flavonoids affect, uh, may affect uh, inflammatory disorders. Uh, I mentioned some of the fish oil work in humans. There's also very interesting work on 
on uh, non-essential fatty acids and their effect on biology that I think will uh, yield a better understanding of how our diets affect our biology. Another great area is probiotics. We're learning some very interesting things as we learn more about the bugs that live in us, about ways in which modifying them may, may affect disease. So I think a lot of good things have, have come together over the last decade. Yeah, I've heard some work about probiotics from Europe that they actually can help avoid eczema if mothers take them while they're pregnant. Just so some research starting. Yeah, so. it's a it, very interesting hypothesis, and it, it really deserves more work. There, there's pretty good evidence that probiotics help with the necrotizing enterocolitis in, in newborn babies, premature new, newborn babies. But the possibility that, that particularly in non-breastfed babies, that uh, adding probiotics to, to uh, the... Uh, to formula may may affect the ultimate development of allergies, I think is very promising and really worthy of more work. Well, I think you're, you're, the work that you're doing is, is really good, and, I, and we like that you're bringing science into it, and we, we thank you for joining us today. Well, I've enjoyed being part of your conversation, and, and uh, thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, our guest today has been Dr. Josephine Briggs, director of NCCAM, which is the National Center, Center for, for Complementary and Alternative, and Alternative Medicine. Medicine. And Josephine, thank you for being a guest on Second Opinion Live here on ReachMD. So what do you think, Matt? We, should we... I wish we had more time to speak with her. I mean, I always wish this about our guests, but this was really kind of interesting because there is a lot of buzz right now, especially when she mentioned low back pain. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking right off the bat, you know, vertebroplasties are, quote-unquote, going out of style. Uh, there must be a flooding of interest now towards alternative um, non-surgical approaches. And I like that she's the right person for the job because she's, you, you've got to show these things work scientifically. You just can't go on anecdotes anymore. And that's a lot of what goes out there in the marketplace. So Yeah, yeah it brings a whole new level of legit legitimacy to the field. Absolutely. And we can bring, th bring that together in partnership, I hope, in the future. So, on to the ReachMD Forum, Matt. This week, an interesting situation. I love this one that MSNBC reported on recently. A medical clinic with two doors and two names and two price lists right around the corner, like a corner building. You go, one for the insured and one for those who pay cash. It kind of feels like a two-tiered system of healthcare to me, but I'm wondering how you feel about it. Well, I know how you feel you about it. You know how I feel about it. But let's, let's give some other filler detail here. Um, so apparently this is a radiology clinic located in the Upper East Side of New York City. And if you enter on one side, it has one name and a waiting room holding a couple of dozen people. And that's the side for those um, who carry regular insurance. But if you walk around the corner, you enter a waiting room for an office with a different name with just a few chairs and almost no wait. And obviously that's the side that takes just cash uh, checks or credit cards. Yeah, I know. Well, we've read this article. Waits for appointments are longer on the insurance side. Mm -hmm. The gowns are flimsier. <laughs> and the result, That's what gets my gown. I, right I hate there. flimsy gowns. <laughs> and result, I mean, you get robes on the side if you pay for it. And, and results are mailed to the patient after the films are read. Mm -hmm. If you're paying for it, the radiologist comes in immediately and tells you you're okay. You know, your, your mammogram is fine or your x-ray is fine. There, there's a lot of issues here. But, but an interesting thing here, the same doctors read the scans on both sides. You know, and that's a really interesting or an important point here, that it is ultimately the same clinic. It's just put into two different uh, divisions. Well, I think there's a lot to be said here. First of all, we do have a two-tiered healthcare. We have a two-tiered mm -hmm. everything system. If you pay more, you fly first class. Mm -hmm. If you buy better health insurance as compared to an HMO, you don't need to get the referrals. You can, you can get more things done. But I think there's a question here of it being in the same structure, same doctors, same equipment, 
if you pay cash, we'll treat you nicer. If you don't pay cash, you can wait two weeks for your results. Yeah. Something about that bothers me. It bothers me too, especially since there's evidence out there now that um, suggests that that waiting period has a huge effect and impact on one's health and for all their other comorbidities, uh, and um, it really kind of affects uh, one's outcome for a number of other problems that they that they have, right. waiting for that radiology test. And so, you did, you have, I mean, as opposed to flying first class versus flying coach, you both get there at the same time, you ultimately have the same destination, your, your, your journey is not as good in coach. But in this case, uh, in, you know, your journey is not as good, obviously. And in waiting for those tests, um, something could be missed, um, that time period that you're waiting um, it's just a lot that could that could happen. You'll huh? get more deep vein thrombosis in coach than you will in first class. So there is more cor- morbidity flying in coach. <laughs> they never gave me the stockings in first class. Of course, I don't ride first no, but, class. But, but you're, you're sleeping. <laughs> no, I mean, look, this goes on everywhere in healthcare. Yeah. If you come in as an HMO patient, you have a referral, you're there for that disease, you get treated for that. You don't, doctors don't let you ask 10 other questions yeah. well, as long as I'm here. So, I mean, it's true. So it goes on. But on the other hand, I think this is so blatant to have two doors, same yeah. service. It's almost embarrassing to me as a physician that this place exists like that. Make two separate stores, yeah. you know, two separate offices. If you want to do that, you want to practice boutique medicine, go ahead and do it. You want to just take insurance or, or public aid or whatever, do that too. But don't mix it together in the same place and with the same equipment. There's, yeah, there's something it just rubs like, us the wrong way. Although, I mean, to be honest, and more devil's advocate, privileged service wings and hospitals, I mean, is that any different when you really boil it down? You know, a place where you have a whole entire wing. Yep. You tell me. Well, it's the way it is in America. You know, money talks sometimes. Money talks. And with that, that's going to about do it for us here on Second Opinion Live. we got to run because Michael's high on ginkgo biloba. I love that stuff. He still thinks it's doing something for him. we got to have him talk to somebody. Thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Yes, for more about Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, visit our website at reachmd.com slash SOL. Feel free to give us a shout on Twitter, online on Facebook. And more non-traditional practitioners listen to us than any other station. You can also follow us on your iPhone. Until next time, I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. Thank you for joining us. Keep your radio dialed into ReachMDXM160.